Kyle Hyman. On today's episode of Truth and Charity, we have a special guest with us, Father Jacob Runyon. We're going to get to know you a little bit better and, and hear what you're doing with the diocese. Uh, before we do that, Father, would you mind leading us in the Angelus? Be happy to. Thank you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. The angel of the Lord declared unto Mary. And she conceived of the Holy Spirit. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Behold the handmaid of the Lord. Be it done unto me according to your word. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Pray for us, O Holy Mother of God, that we may be made worthy of the promises of Christ. Pour forth, we beseech thee, O Lord, thy grace into our hearts, that we to whom the incarnation of Christ thy Son was made known by the message of an angel, may by his passion and cross be brought to the glory of his resurrection through the same Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. I am Kyle Hyman, and Bishop wasn't able to be with us today, and so whenever he's unavailable, we always like to find somebody from the diocese that can give us a little insight into some different things that are going on. And today, we have a special guest, Father Jacob Runyon. Thank you so much for being here. Sure. Happy to be here. Thanks. Uh, Judicial vicar for our diocese, rector of Fort Wayne's Cathedral of the Immaculate Conception. And first of all, what does it mean to be the judicial vicar? Well, thank you for having me. I just started this position as a judicial vicar back in June. Uh, Especially like to say thanks to Bishop Rhodes for uh, his trust in me. Uh And uh, the judicial vicar's job is basically to assist the bishop in the role of uh, governing the diocese, in particular with the judicial authority that the bishop has. Now, in order to explain that more clearly, I think it's important to kind of take a step back and think about the governing role that the bishop has in the diocese. The bishop has uh, the full governance of the whole diocese, and that includes legislative authority, executive authority, and judicial authority. Uh, You can kind of think of it as a parallel to like our civil law and our civil governing system where we have sort of these different branches of the government. But in the Catholic Church, bishop has all those um, authorities because he needs that in order to do his job of governing and guiding uh, the diocese, the the flock entrusted to his care. Mm -hmm. So he has legislative authority. He passes laws and guidelines. He has executive authority. You know, he has to enact laws and he has to sort of direct things. That probably takes the most of his time. But then he also has judicial authority, which means it's his responsibility ultimately to adjudicate or to basically apply the laws of the church, the laws of God, really, to situations as they are in the diocese. Now, in this particular role, I assist him. He makes me his vicar, which means that I exercise his authority in this particular area. And so I exercise his authority in judicial matters, which really kind of means like, I don't know, it's like the church's court system, so to Mm -hmm. speak. And in this particular role, I have two kind of halves of my job. One is sort of an administrative kind of job. It's my job to manage the cases that come into the tribunal. I'll talk more about what those cases are in a Mm -hmm. second. 
It's also my job to manage the employees of the tribunal. So I'm their administrator. And also the judicial vicar by law is a judge, which means um, it's my mission or my responsibility to actually weigh in on certain cases and to make decisions. And when you say by law, we're talking about a Catholic church law doesn't have any civil authority. Correct. So the Catholic Church is a well-organized body, probably one of the most well-organized in the world, and it has its own code of laws. Now, the code of canon law is sort of ancient in that the laws of the church have been compiled for these 2,000 years that we've been around. Mm laws that come to us through ecumenical councils, laws that come to us through decisions of the Pope, etc. But in 1917, for the first time, one unified book of law was put together for the Catholic Church, and it, was, it became the universal law as expected throughout the whole world. And then after the Second Vatican Council, the laws of the Catholic Church were revised, and uh, that work was finally completed in 1983. And huh. that's, the con- that's the current law that governs the Catholic Church. Okay. One of the requirements to be judicial vicar is to be an expert in canon law. Mm-hmm. So Bishop Rhodes sent me for canon law training uh, starting in 2010. Mm-hmm. It was a five-year program consisting of summers and online classes conducted through the Catholic University of America. Okay. And so I completed it in 2015. And it's interesting that the Code of Canon Law basically covers the entire breadth of the church's life from things like the responsibilities of all Christian faithful, the role of the Pope, how to celebrate the liturgy and the sacraments, how to govern uh, religious orders and institutes, and basically just about anything you can think of uh, is governed and directed by this Code of Canon Law. And I had to study that entire thing. (laughs) Uh, But when it comes to the tribunal and the work that we do in adjudicating cases, 99.99% of those cases are marriage cases. Mm -hmm. And marriage cases are one of the kind of law cases that are envisioned in canon law, but there are also other cases that could possibly be envisioned. It's just that those don't happen near as frequently. Things like criminal cases, there could be a possibility of property disputes, et cetera, that could be kind of adjudicated inside of a tribunal. But those don't really happen uh, so frequently. But what does happen are these marriage cases. So I have certain administrative responsibilities for every single case. There's interventions that I do before it's assigned to a judge. But then also as a judicial vicar, I could be a judge on specific cases as well. Okay. So when Bishop sends you to get your, basically, is this like a canon law degree? Right, canon law degree. Do you Are you seeing the future and saying, okay, at some point he's going to have me as the judicial vicar, or was that not necessarily the case? So it's not necessarily the case. In, in order to be a judge in the uh, tribunal, you also need to have the same degree that I have. Uh-huh. And uh, I was a judge for the, the past three years, meaning that uh, I, would, I would take the role of judge in specific marriage cases. But Father Mark Gertner was the judicial vicar, uh-huh. and so it was his job to do sort of all of the administration of the cases that come through. I wasn't necessarily thinking Bishop would ask me to do this particular role, Um, but uh, it also made a lot of sense uh, when he asked Father Mark to become the new vicar general of the diocese that he would need somebody to fulfill this role, Uh and so it was an honor for him to ask me to do that. We also don't have a lot of canon lawyers in the diocese right now, Uh Uh, so me and Father Francis Chikumwa, the other uh, priests that have canon law degrees, 
one of our priests is being sent for study starting next summer. Oh, okay. uh, Father David Violi, who's the pastor in Bluffton. Okay. Uh, so it'll be nice to have him uh, working with us. Uh, but for right now, it's just uh, just me and Father Francis are the priests that are here. So when Bishop called me into his office and he said, you know, I need to make Father Mark the Vicar General, uh, I knew what that meant. Yeah. <laughs> so then do you divide up these cases and you would you wouldn't have two judges on one case, but... Right, that's correct. So okay. I would say in the mind of the church, the uh, the church r- requests that uh, every case would have what's called a collegiate tribunal, meaning there's at least three judges assigned, uh, and maybe even as many as five judges assigned to a particular case. But that because of necessities, the universal law is given specific permission for single judges to be the judge in a case. So when it comes to cases in the Diocese of Fort Wayne South Bend, right now we have these two judges, me and Father Francis, mm-hmm. and it's my job to assign the cases to a judge. And uh, I just sort of alternate between us okay. unless there's some kind of reason why um, there would be a conflict of interest. Sure. So, for example, I wouldn't be the judge on my own parishioners because I have a pastoral relationship with them sure. at the cathedral or say if I knew them well at St. Jude's, my former assignment. I just think that uh, that, would, that would have a lack of objectivity, same with Father Francis, or if it's a family member or something along those lines. Yeah. So so long as there isn't that sort of situation, then it just sort of alternates between me and Father Francis. You mentioned the diocesan tribunal. How many people are on that, and what type of people make it up? Sure. And uh, there, there are a lot of people that make the tribunal work, so to speak. I don't do anything by myself. Uh, I've got a really good team, a really good staff. So there's definitely, definitely different roles inside of the tribunal. Some of the roles are very objective. You know, we can't really take sides for or against the person's petition or, you know, what the, the case they're bringing forward. We have to really try to be focused in on the concept of justice and, and trying to make a, a fair determination to, based upon the evidence. So people who are neutral are people like me as the judicial vicar or as the judge. There are people called auditors, and auditors are responsible for gathering evidence Normally, this is done through interviews, whether in person or over the phone. Mm-hmm. So the auditors are in charge of, of these interviews, and we have certain administrative staff too, a secretary who puts together all the information on the cases. We have a, a person who types up the transcripts. So these would be considered objective uh, staff of the, of the tribunal. Mm-hmm. And then there are people there are we have two people who are advocates. And now the advocate's job is to help the petitioner make the very best case for the reason why this, uh, they, they claim that this marriage is invalid. Uh-huh. Also, respondents ha- have the right to advocates. And let's say they are not in agreement with the marriage being invalid, then the advocate's job would be to argue the best case for that person that the marriage wasn't uh, invalid. So advocates are people on behalf of the parties. They're not necessarily objective. They're trying to do the best that they can sure. for the people. And then we have one person in the tribunal named a defender of the bond, and her job is to always uh, intervene in every single case to make sure that the the laws of the Catholic Church are being followed. And then based upon the evidence, her job is also to point out uh, the reasons why this marriage uh, shouldn't be declared invalid, etc. So her job is to evaluate the evidence and do the best to present the reason why the bond of marriage should be upheld. Hmm. So it's interesting inside of the tribunal, we have all of these different roles and they're complementary, but at the same time, they can't be confused you know, so as a right. judge, my job is not to 
say, I'm going to do whatever I can to make sure this marriage is invalid. Rather, my job is to evaluate the evidence uh, as evenly and as fairly as I can mm-hmm. because the, the bond of marriage also needs to be defended in each and every one of these kinds of cases. But there are people who work on behalf of the parties themselves. And right. uh, so it, it's kind of a mixture of, of roles. There's a lot of this that sounds similar to a civil courtroom. And the advocates sound kind of like a lawyer that would be representing the persons, but in what ways is it similar? In what ways is it different to a courtroom? Because uh, would this be open to a public? Do you have a crowd of people at? Uh, is there an actual event, or is this happening over time via emails and meetings and phone calls, or how does it work? Right. Well, I'm still waiting to see if they ever want to make like a a true crime uh, TV show, <laughs> yes. and uh, you know the yeah. the tribunal Com-com. is uh, yeah, kind of like Perry Mason or something <laughs> yeah. like that. Um, <laughs> right. I would say there's similarities and there's differences. Uh, one of the similarities is due process and right to review and to representation. We take these things very seriously. But then uh, some of the differences, obviously our mission is different, right? Our mission is to serve Jesus Christ and to uphold his truth in all things. Right. So uh, that's, a, that's an important difference. As far as the actual uh, procedure of the cases themselves go, I'll talk about things like witness testimony, and I'll talk about things like depositions. But at the end of the day, most of our cases are conducted by way of a paper trial, so to speak. So all of the evidence is turned into a transcript or is turned into a collection of of documents, and then the documents are what are evaluated. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, canon law does allow for what's called an oral contentious trial, which would be kind of like what you would see on TV. Okay. But uh, not to my knowledge, does that ever really take place anywhere? Okay. Um, although uh, one of the advocates at the tribunal said she's all in favor of giving it a try one of these times. But yeah. uh, at any rate, that's not how we do cases. Our cases are all done through these uh, collection of evidence and uh, submission of the transcripts and, and paper. But yet the parties always have the option to review these things to make sure that what's on the paper is actually uh, corresponds to the things that they actually said. So it's important for us to really make sure that the evidence is is uh, obtained in an accurate way as possible. Okay. Well, you mentioned most of the work is with annulments, and so that's kind of going to be the focus of our show, talking about annulments and when an annulment would be appropriate and when it wouldn't work and some of the details therein. So that's all coming up right here on Truth and Charity, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity. I'm Kyle Hyman, and joining us a special guest, Father Jacob Runyon, the Judicial Vicar for our Diocese and Rector of Fort Wayne's Cathedral of the Immaculate Conception. We've been talking about the Diocesan Tribunal and some of the work that he does as a Judicial Vicar. And you mentioned a lot of what you do, most of what you do for the Tribunal is the annulments. And thought maybe kind of backing up a little bit and talking about marriage before we get into annulments, how is the Catholic view of marriage different maybe than other Christian religions. So I think it's important yeah, to take that step back and to realize the importance of what we're doing. As I mentioned previously, and the difference between sort of a civil you know, law court and a canon law court or the tribunal, you know, we serve Jesus Christ and his truth. So it always starts with, with him. And especially when it comes to marriage, uh, we go right back to the words of Jesus himself. The one sentence I always like to kind of really hold on to is that Jesus said, what God has joined together, no man can separate. Right. We're very much in agreement with that statement at the tribunal. And uh, we truly believe that between two baptized persons, if they enter into marriage validly 
and uh, I'll talk more about what that says in a minute, mm-hmm. then there's no power on earth that can separate uh, a marriage like that. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that that particular teaching on what we call the indissolubility or the unbreakable nature of marriage uh, has become progressively more controversial, even though that statement hasn't changed for 2,000 years. Uh-huh. You know, I find that kind of interesting. What God has joined together no human being can separate. That's been the teaching for 2,000 years. Right. And yet it's become more and more on almost the fringe uh, mm-hmm. of our culture because of the uh, prevalence of divorce and the prevalence of you know, relationships that uh, don't enter into marriage, but they sort of mimic marriage in so many ways, becoming right. sort of the standard uh, in our culture, that the church continuing to proclaim the indissoluble nature of marriage tends to become almost uh, controversial, even like I said, it's never really changed. So that particular principle is always at the heart of everything that we do in the tribunal, even though it seems like to the outside that what we're doing is trying to sort of like separate marriages. So one thing I think that helps in trying to understand what we do at the at the tribunal is uh, to sort of take apart that word annulment a little bit, okay. because the word annulment seems like we take something and then we nullify it. Mm-hmm. So it was a thing, and then it became a you know a nothing mm-hmm. uh, by the action or the intervention of the tribunal, and uh, that's kind of a misnomer of terms because. What I've just said is that if two people enter into marriage validly, two baptized persons, then there's no human power that can separate it. Right. There's no power that can unnullify that particular marriage. The technical term for what we're doing are marriage nullity cases, and that uh, if a marriage is considered to be invalid, then we declare that the marriage is invalid, but we don't make the marriage invalid. So it's really more of an investigation into the circumstances and intentions surrounding marriage at the time of the marriage commitment, whether or not that marriage was valid based upon the church's expectations of what marriage is. Mm-hmm. Now, if we can understand that there was a problem such that it, in, it invalidated the consent of the couples, then we can declare that the marriage is invalid because uh, there, this substantial problem made it so that the valid marriage covenant didn't arise in the first place. Right. Now, this might seem like splitting hairs, especially when people aren't necessarily 100% committed to the church's teaching on the indissoluble nature of marriage. But for me, it really is an important distinction because every single marriage case uh, is successful, I would say. One is that we can label and uh, find a problem such that it invalidated marriage in the first place, that a person's consent was vitiated in mm-hmm. some way. And so, therefore, we can rule in favor of the annulment petition. Or if we have to give a negative because the evidence isn't overwhelming enough to support this claim that the marriage was invalid, then we're supporting the church's teaching on marriage. We're supporting Christ's words about no human being can separate. Right. So, of course, you know, the people who are coming to the tribunal want that affirmative decision saying, yes, the marriage was invalid. But really, both options are a positive outcome when you look at it with this kind of uh, big perspective. So uh, I think it's important to realize that the church's teaching about marriage is based upon the consent of the spouses, Mm. which is a real unique kind of way of looking at this. Because like, let's say, for example, when I'm celebrating mass, like I did this morning, Uh right? I take the bread through the power of the Holy Spirit. I use the words of consecration and that bread becomes the body of Christ. Mm -hmm. Same with the blood of Christ, right? It's not based upon the consent of those inanimate objects, the bread and the wine. It's based upon the power of the Holy Spirit, you know, changing them into the bread and wine. But because the human beings entering into marriage are two free human beings, not inanimate objects, 
objects like, you know, the bread or the water in baptism, etc. Then the consent of the two spouses, these two free human beings, to consent to what marriage is and to be able to know, understand, and to live out the commitments of marriage, because that is what's necessary for marriage. There's a, there's a lot of ways that a consent of a person can be defective in such a way that they weren't ultimately free or that they somehow changed the terms of the marriage contract in such a way to make it invalid. Right. So my job in the tribunal is to really understand uh, what makes people enter into marriage and uh, to understand what it takes to enter into this covenant of marriage and then to be able to determine if the person had all the necessary qualities and intentions in order to enter into marriage. So even as I'm trying to describe this, it seems somewhat amorphous and somewhat kind of like, wow, that seems like a hard thing to be able to determine. How can you tell if a person had the requisite freedom to enter into marriage 27 years ago when they got married? You're starting to see what the difficulty, difficult nature of the tribunal process is all about is that we're trying to really determine internal realities about people's ability to enter into the marriage covenant normally based upon external circumstances or external actions and things like that. But we really have to try to get to the heart of people's consent to be able to determine if there was some problem that made that consent invalid from the beginning. Now, it's it's an important distinction between the word invalid and immoral, for example. Invalid means there was some problem that made a person not free to enter into marriage. It doesn't mean that they were evil. It doesn't Mm. mean that they were bad. It doesn't mean that they did something that was sinful. It just meant that there was this problem that made it so that Maybe they couldn't figure out if marriage was the right move for them or if this particular mm-hmm. person was the right person for them to get married to. Or maybe they had some sort of certain condition or emotional or, or serious concern that they wanted to enter into marriage, but they weren't able to fulfill the requirements of marriage. Or mm. maybe they were so convinced by some climate of the culture that they changed some essential component. Like they said, I want to get married, but we never want to have children because this is a harsh, cruel world or I don't whatever people might say. Sure. So then that's not marriage according to the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. So these different kinds of things, you know, they're hard to prove or they're hard to determine, but they really could affect the way a person could evaluate uh, going into marriage or have the freedom to be able to uh, go into marriage effectively. And so if those problems exist, then the church really holds up this basic um, – principle that a person can't be held responsible for something they weren't free to choose in the first place, mm-hmm. right? And Or they're not able to satisfy the requirements. If you and I enter into a contract and I said that this contract is dependent upon me running a mile in two minutes, okay, that's just not something I can do. Uh-huh. Probably couldn't do it in 10 minutes, so you know <laughs> what I'm trying to say. So I would be entering into a contract that's automatically invalid because I can't fulfill the requirements. Right. It's important to think about uh, marriage the way the church does, which is the consent of the two spouses to have this contract where they enter into marriage. And if there's something that makes it so they're not able to understand, fulfill, or if they change the terms of that contract, then that's what uh, marriage nullity is all about. So we don't annul, we don't nullify any marriage, but rather we say, kind of like a good doctor who's evaluating the the symptoms of a of a patient and they'll say this person has x disease or has x you know medical issue we evaluate the circumstances surrounding the marriage we evaluate the ability to give consent based on both the spouses and then we can make a diagnosis that the marriage was invalid from the beginning. Or we can make a diagnosis that we can't prove that and that we have to uphold the the um, the validity and the sanctity of indissoluble marriage. So it sounds to me like 
this has absolutely nothing to do with divorce. Would this be completely separate and a totally different issue than divorce? Which I think a lot of times divorce and annulments get somewhat equated, like it's a Catholic divorce or something like that. Correct. So a divorce is an administrative action by a civil authority rendering a couple who are married in the eyes of the state uh, to revert them back to being single. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the differences are administrative as opposed to judicial, and they have no problem with saying they were married and now they're not married. Uh They're not looking at the original agreement, so to speak. So for the Catholic Church, the nullity proceeding uh, is completely different from a a divorce in that – We don't believe that there's a human power on earth that can separate marriage between two baptized persons. So, you know, I could wave my magic pen all I want, but but God is what joined them together. So therefore, no administrative decision can render them separate between two baptized persons. So rather, it's a judicial proceeding, which means we're gathering evidence. We're looking at the case. Somebody's presenting before the court, and we're trying to see if this evidence is in, in such a way compelling that we can reach moral certainty about the invalidity of the marriage. That being said, uh, virtually every marriage case that we judge has a civil divorce included in the evidence. And one of the reasons why we're keen on making sure that we collect information about the civil divorce is that one of the first uh, laws of the church when it comes to these nullity cases is that the judges and people like me are supposed to try to encourage reconciliation, right? Uh The church is not in favor of marriages ever failing or falling apart. Mm -hmm. I mean – the church's pastoral ministry is there to support families and to support married couples. So in some ways, that divorce decree, civil divorce decree, is sort of like you know concrete evidence that reconciliation isn't possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and also it makes the civil effects of the separation of the union, uh, it, it takes care of all that aspect. The, the tribunal has no uh, impact on the civil effects of marriage, uh, you know, separation. So, you know, we don't look at things like uh, alimony payments or child support or who gets possession of which properties and all that stuff has to be settled because settled it's a civil law matter. Okay. The church is specifically looking when it comes to these marriage nullity cases just at sort of the eternal or sacramental effects of the marriage, but we don't have these uh, specific, um, you know, civil law uh, connections. So. It's important for them to take care of those things, and that's kind of what the civil divorce and the civil court does. But you're right that even people well-intentioned, they kind of see them as maybe two sides of the same coin. You know, there's like the there's the Allen County Courthouse side, and then there's the Catholic Church side. But mm-hmm. they're really completely different sort of procedures. And the sooner that a person who's especially coming to the tribunal recognizes that what we're doing at the tribunal is very, very different than what they do at the courthouse, then the more they're able to see you know, what they need to do in order to make a good case, uh, in order to present good evidence for a case. Is the annulment process a healing experience for people? I would say that it can be. And maybe that would be the ultimate pastoral goal mm-hmm. of the situation. But I, I know um, it can be a difficult thing. Yeah. You know, Most of the time when people go through uh, a marriage that ends in divorce, uh, it's not a good experience. It's not a pleasant experience. Mm-hmm. And so for us to say we need to talk about all of those uh, events and we need to talk about uh, you know, your courtship and all this, it can really bring up a lot of harsh memories for people. Mm-hmm. I've definitely had folks who said they're not ready to do that yet. Mm-hmm. You know, And so – um, I always say, well, you know, when you're ready, let me know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can understand the emotional pain that that can cause. I would also hope, 
and pray that anyone going through this would experience the the closeness of Christ and the ability to grow in their relationship with him. But I don't think it necessarily can hinge on the result of the case because there are simply cases where the evidence cannot be gathered and we cannot uh, declare an affirmative decision. So therefore, those people find the the end of the road of annulment case maybe a heavier cross than yeah. than a lightening of burdens. But I think if a person went into it with the right understanding and knowing that um, the goal of this case is to present the best evidence and uh, to sort of be open to God's will no matter how this kind of goes down, then um, then it can certainly be healing or you know at least growth and discipleship uh, that goes through there. One of the things Bishop Rhodes did uh, a few years back was that he was real keen on making sure that there was more pastoral input, more pastoral accompaniment to people who were going through these marriage nullity cases. So he asked all the pastors of the diocese to try to be more personally involved with parishioners who came. Uh, it used to just be that they would get a packet of paper, they would send it to the tribunal. And let's say you lived in Goshen and you're, you know, you're an hour and a half from Fort Wayne and you get letters from the tribunal and you maybe phone calls, but it doesn't have that personal connection. Mm-hmm. So Bishop thought it would be it would be good if if all the priests of the diocese would know what the tribunal did, would know the procedures, uh, the basics, and then to be able to help the people going through these so that there was this idea that even if they had a tough case or even if there was you know, lack of evidence, they would still have this connection with the church, that they would know that the church is still very much interested in them and, and, and helping them to grow closer to Christ. So I think that that particular step has been very helpful for a lot of people. I know in my role as uh, pastor of St. Jude's and my role as rector of the cathedral, I have people who are you know, working through uh, the marriage nullity case and I'm not their judge in those cases, so I'm able to kind of explain to them, you know, this is what's going on in your case, and this is what, uh, you know, this is what that letter means, and and so I think I'm able to kind of take away some of the misconceptions that they have, and I I, I just think knowledge is uh, knowledge is a lot is power when mm-hmm. it comes to these annulment cases because the more somebody knows about what we're trying to do going into this case, the better they're able to understand um, and to sympathize with, you know, the questions that are being asked them, etc. I always try and tell people when they're uh, presenting a marriage nullity case that it's so important to realize that this is, this is a trial. And uh, what's on trial, so to speak, is the validity of their marriage. Mm-hmm. And it can only be overturned by evidence. Mm-hmm. That evidence comes in the form of the interview of the spouse's other witnesses who could be brought forward, other documents. Sometimes we ask people to undergo psychological assessments Hmm. to see if they have certain things in their maybe development that inhibited certain emotional kinds of things. And if a person realizes that it's their responsibility to present this evidence, then they kind of take a little bit more ownership for the case and they get a little bit more involved. And the more involved somebody is and the more motivated they are to really help present the truth to the tribunal, then the smoother the case the case works from start to finish. But I'll have people who kind of just think they just have to put their name on a piece of paper and then everything will be just fine. Um, right. It doesn't work that way. We need you know real evidence and and it can be a challenge. Sometimes you have a former spouse who doesn't want to participate, mm-hmm. and uh, we don't have subpoena authority like the civil law did. You know, uh-huh. I can't send in the Swiss Guard to arrest somebody if they don't <laughs> uh, if they don't participate in the trial. So if a person says I'm not interested, then all of a sudden all of the information that they could supply is missing. 
Now we have to either you know, try to find that information through other sources, other witnesses, or we might have to look at other specific areas that might have been maybe not the most dramatic reason why marriage might not be valid, but there could be other reasons too. So those, cha- those cases are more challenging. But mm-hmm. if, I, if I can talk to a spouse and just say, it might not be the most comfortable thing for you to talk to your former spouse, but um, we're going to contact them because every single uh, case, we need to contact both spouses to let them know that we're investigating the case because the church is defending that person's right too. And if you could talk to that person first and just say, it'd be really great if you could participate because wouldn't it be nice to know the issues surrounding our marriage? And a lot of times people warm up to the idea and it's not a really burdensome uh, procedure to sit through an interview and to answer some questions. And it can be just such a much much stronger case because more evidence that can paint the whole picture of the marriage makes it easier to arrive at that kind of moral certainty that we're looking for. All right. Well, we have more to talk about with regards to the issue of annulments. And if you have any questions for Bishop when he gets back, you can ask them by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. You can call or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And coming up, we'll have more from Father Jacob Runyon here on Truth and Charity, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our special guest, Father Jacob Runyon, the judicial vicar for our diocese. Been talking about annulments and the process of getting an annulment and how that looks. It's fascinating. And there are a couple of different things that people might misunderstand about annulments. Some people might think that, you know, if one spouse is abusive or they're cheating on the other spouse, that that might be automatic grounds for annulment. Is this something that you get a lot? Could you maybe explain what the truth is behind that? Sure. And I think it is maybe a common misconception, not just among our Christian people, but also among uh, Catholic priests. I'll have my brother priest who will say, you know, I've got this couple and this, you know, tragic thing happened in the in the marriage. Uh, so doesn't that kind of sound like a like an automatic annulment or mm-hmm. something like that? And so I think it's important to realize the distinction between consent, which is where mar- valid marriage is based upon, and then uh, actions that kind of tell us what the internal disposition of a person is. So, for example, what I mean by that is, let's take some of the examples that you just used, um, the example of physical abuse. Mm-hmm. Obviously, that's horrible. Yeah. And I would recommend anybody that's suffering uh, physical abuse to get help, to get protected. Nobody deserves to live in a situation that's uh, not healthy, where mm-hmm. you can, where you really feel afraid. So that's kind of a separate issue from whether or not the marriage is invalid. Okay. But now let's say... Uh, that particular action, does that correspond to an internal disposition of, uh, of lack of respect for you know, what marriage is all about? Mm-hmm. I would say that the actions that uh, we can pinpoint, things like abuse or infidelity, these things happen to be symptoms of what could be a deeper underlying problem. Okay. And it's that underlying problem that invalidates a marriage, not necessarily those symptoms. So, for example, getting back to the example I used about going to the doctor, if I said, doctor, I've got a runny nose, my eyes are watering, um, and I'm sick to my stomach, he might say, you have the flu. Mm-hmm. Now, the runny nose isn't what causes the flu, but that's uh, right. an indication that I right. have the flu. So these particular um, 
very serious things that people that really affect people's lives, abuse, infidelity, uh, drug and alcohol abuse, and uh, all of these things can be symptoms of a deep emotional, spiritual, mental kind of problem that does invalidate a marriage. But um, those things are symptoms of that, and we have to try and prove that that underlying thing is there. So these actions can certainly be confirming evidence, but there's no sort of like automatic uh, one piece of evidence that definitely invalidates a marriage. You have to kind of take those things together as making proof for this internal reality. It's a real challenge uh, to prove an internal reality. For example, we can't really prove uh, a marriage is valid, you know, that all the things necessary for true marriage are there. We assume that it is because uh, of God's intervention in marriage, but that's kind of a supernatural thing that we can't necessarily prove definitively. But we can prove that these certain problems made it such that, uh, that a person wasn't capable of entering into true marriage. But the more persons realize that we are interested in the external details of their life and the actions that took place, but only insofar as they prove internal realities. So we have to be able to demonstrate the connection between internals and, and externals. What about the location of the marriage? So say two Catholics get married in the Catholic Church. That sounds like a wedding. Now we need to do an investigation. What if it's one Catholic, one non-Catholic in a Catholic Church? What if it's a Catholic and a non-Catholic in a non-Catholic Church? What if it's two non-Catholics outside of the church? What if it's two non-Catholics at a court case, at a courthouse? Does this make a difference in the situation? Yeah, and I'm really glad you brought that up because I would say this is one of the greatest uh, misconceptions or that people have uh, confusions about this. Catholics have a general sense that if they got married in the church and uh, their marriage ended in divorce, they know that if they want to pursue marriage again, they need an annulment. They have a general sense of that. Mm-hmm. But I've had very frequently, I've had people come to me, they'll say, I've already got my annulment and I want to marry you know, Joe Smith over here. Um, and I'll say, well, has Joe ever been married? Well, yeah, but he's Protestant. So uh-huh. you know that doesn't matter. And uh, the truth is it matters greatly. So okay. let me just try and paint uh, kind of a general picture because I think it'll kind of explain it. The Catholic Church requires that Catholics follow marriage laws in order to marry validly. So, for example, under normal circumstances, a Catholic marries another baptized Catholic and they get married in a Catholic ceremony. Mm-hmm. I mean, you couldn't get hardly more clear than that as being the proper forum for the celebration of marriage. Or a Catholic could get married to a non-Catholic person, and there's certain rules and permissions that are required, and it's part of the paperwork that priests take care of, and they get married in a Catholic ceremony. Mm -hmm. But if a Catholic gets married to a person, Catholic or otherwise, in a non-Catholic ceremony without a special permission to get married in a non-Catholic ceremony, then we automatically consider that marriage to be invalid from the beginning because a Catholic is required Mm -hmm. to follow Catholic marriage laws. So... A Catholic gets married to another person on the beach in Florida without any kind of permission from any kind of civil authority, then uh, that that marriage would be considered invalid from the beginning, Mm -hmm. not because the consent of the spouses was somehow wrong, but because the form it took place in was wrong. Right. But the the Catholic Church believes that it can only legislate for Catholics, which kind of makes sense. Uh So therefore, we can't tell non-Catholics... Uh, how to do, you know, marriage. Uh-huh. And marriage is a natural human institution that Christ raised to the level of a sacrament, but that doesn't take away the idea that this is this natural institution. So when non-Catholics get married according to whatever kind of non-Catholic ceremony they want to get married in, then we believe that the rules of indissolubility apply to them too. 
Now, it's important to know that indissolubility only really applies to two baptized persons. So if a person is not baptized, it kind of follows different rules, a little more complicated, probably more than we want to get into right here. But the basic rule is Catholics have to follow Catholic marriage laws. And if they get married in non-Catholic ceremonies without permission, then it's invalid. Mm -hmm. But when non-Catholics get married according to whatever uh, ceremonies they want to get married in, then the Catholic Church will uphold that with every kind of validity or strength that uh, Catholic marriage is. Uh, so let's say two baptized Methodists, uh -huh. they get married at the courthouse, which has no religious overtones whatsoever. Uh -huh. But we would still say we can't tell Methodists how to get married. Okay. So when they said, I do, and they signed those papers, then we need to do a full annulment case for those people in order for them to be declared free to marry in the Catholic Church. And I say that that causes a lot of confusion from people, uh, especially when they show up and they say, we want to get married this summer and everything looks great. And then come to find out that person had been married previously. And they say, well, what do you mean, Father? They were never married in the Catholic Church. And I would say, well, we value Methodists and we're not going to tell you how to get married, but we're also going to say that we still don't believe in divorce, even if other Christian denominations do. Right. So it can be a real sticking point, but... Again, if I have that personal uh, chance to really talk with that person, kind of explain what the church's understanding of this is, I think they're a little bit more open to going through the difficult thing of, you know, of trying to challenge their original marriage. Yeah. All right. Well, if you have questions, you can ask Bishop. You can go to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. You can call or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And we're almost out of time, so maybe coming up we can do a speed round with a couple quick Sounds questions good. here. On Truth and Charity, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity. I am Kyle Hyman, and joining us as a special guest in place of Bishop is Father Jacob Runyon, Judicial Vicar for our diocese. And we've been talking about the annulment process and wanted to just real quickly before we're done, maybe do a little speed round, kind of crank through some of the unanswered questions that I had. Sounds good. Ready How to go. long does it usually take for an annulment case to be tried and decided? Because of the procedural requirements of the cases, we have to involve everybody. We have to uh, inform everyone. They have an opportunity to respond. I would say it always takes at least a year. A uh, year and a half is pretty normal. Uh, cases longer than that usually had some kind of problem. You know, when people say, well, I had an annulment, but it took me five years, uh, there was probably some extenuating circumstances in that. And But I would say normally they're under two years. Okay. How much does it cost? Well, there's no charge. Uh, they used to obviously cost money, uh, and that that's funded by the diocese because all of the people in the tribunal they don't work for free. Mm -hmm. uh, they're working hard right now. But uh, the the bishop decided to remove the fees, the administrative fees. So the entire thing is subsidized by the by the diocese. Uh, the only cost that might arise is if we ask them to undergo a psychological examination. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes we ask them to pay for part of that. That would be it. And is this something that you would recommend for people, even if they're not planning on remarrying somebody's divorce and they said, you know what, I'm, I'm not going to get remarried, should they still seek an annulment? So I can't necessarily answer that question for people because, uh, I mean, I could help them discern if okay. that's what's for them. But uh, I have some of both. I have people who are very much interested in marrying another person. I have some people who are currently in civil law marriages, and maybe they've been married civilly for 25 years, but they were married 40 years ago in the Catholic mm -hmm. Church, and they want to uh, they want to come back to the sacraments. We have those kinds of cases. Then we have other people say, no, Father, I'm not interested in marriage, but this broken marriage and all the bad experiences that I had that go into it, I really just need the Church's clarity on what was going on and if this mm -hmm. marriage is valid, just kind of for their own mental health or, you know, for their own kind of well-being, and, and it's all across the board. 
Okay, but as far as like a person's soul is not necessarily affected by a divorce if they're not that's remarrying. A, I think that's a that's another misconception that uh, people will say. What hurts the most is I can't go to communion, and I will say, well, why can't you do that? Well, because I'm divorced. It's it's real important to know that uh, just because a marriage uh, wasn't successful and the part spouses had to separate for whatever reason, uh-huh. that doesn't necessarily mean that there's any reason they couldn't go to communion. I mean, probably a good confession would always be a good thing to do, but uh, there's a difference between being divorced and then being divorced and remarried, right? Uh, and that's a that's kind of a big distinction. This has been great, Father Jake. I feel like I could do another two hours on this because there's just all kinds of different variations and stuff. But uh, before we go, could we get a priestly blessing with a little prayer for marriages and those that are struggling as well? Happy to do it. Let us pray in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. God, our Father, we, get, we thank and praise you for all things, and especially for your gift of love. And we would ask and encourage that love to flourish among the hearts of, of married faithful. I would ask that you would give your grace and strength to all those who are in marriages who are struggling, and for those who have gone through the pain of divorce, that you would continue to lead and guide them into the ways of your truth. Help us all to do your will and to really grow in that love, that love that sent Jesus to the cross and to rise again from the dead. As always, we make our prayer through Christ our Lord. Amen. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. May Almighty God bless you all, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union.